This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Ariel Adams with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Fred Mandelbaum, and he is a Breitling historian and a consultant to the CEO. Fred, we've had a number of fantastic conversations together, and welcome to the show. Uh, great, great to, to be here. Great to talk to you, Ariel. So I'll give people a little bit of context. Every single time there's a Breitling event, which there have been many over the years, once in a while there'll be someone saying, oh, and by the way, Fred is going to be there. And then for me, that's like cause to celebrate. I'm like, okay, this is going to be good. Because every time we get together, we have these wonderful discussions about watches and the brands and stuff like that. And my, the question I want to start with is how did Breitling find you? How did Breitling find me? Breitling... I've I've been an avid collector of Breitling and a very very active uh, member of forums, uh, social media, etc. For, for many many years, and uh, we we heard rumors rumors in the market. I don't know. You probably may have heard them some days before me uh, that uh, Georges Kahn was leaving his job. Nobody believed he'd do that, of course, uh, and was. Taking over uh, as as Breitling CEO. So, so as was, at IWC, for those that don't know, George Kern was the CEO of IWC. He had actually left IWC by then and, and was oh. uh, at the at the uh, head office of uh, the group of Richemont, and he was uh, responsible for all the relevant watch brands of Richemont. So uh, yeah, so he's uh, was actually actually above all the all the brand CEOs. He was technically CEO of multiple brands. Remember, there's a small period of time where he ran a couple of companies. Yeah. So uh, as I said, I mean, the rumors that he was uh, I don't know, he's trying to be the, the person to to make uh, whatever. He was someone everybody was watching uh, and. Uh, He's, he had huge success at, at RWC, as you know, and, and was actually uh, positioned to, to have such uh, interesting brands like, like Lange or, 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 or whatever to, to look after. So uh, it, it was a bit of a surprise in a way, uh, hearing that. I mean, it's a hard job. Let's be honest. Having that much responsibility, any responsibility at Richemont is tough. I mean, yeah, can yeah. you imagine the day-to-day of that role? Uh, yeah. That, 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 <laughs> I mean, it may have played a role in, in, in George uh, saying, I just I just want to prove that I can do it on my own without reporting to anyone, without politics, etc. Whatever the reason right. was, uh, but it was in a, in a way uh, like, like uh, I don't know, uh, someone, someone leaving Apple uh, who's positioned to be the, the next CEO and, and joining a small startup uh, so uh, it was something we heard about and said, oh, that sounds interesting, but, but will that ever happen? Uh, yeah. And and this was it. It was summer of, of 2017 uh, when, the, when, the, when the rumors and the whispers, uh, et cetera, started. Uh, and uh, I was actually on, on vacation in Italy, lying, beautiful day, uh, lying uh, uh, at the pool in the Veneto, and then my phone dings. And uh, it's an Instagram message. Hello, this is Georges Kahn. Would you call me? Uh, so that's how, quote unquote, Breitling or Georges Kahn found me. Uh, that's how George does stuff. He's, he's connected <laughs> a lot and nothing's too casual for George, right? Uh, so that was, I mean, <laughs> as casual as it, as it could be, we, we, I, of course, uh, called him back and, and we started to talk and uh, uh, I hadn't put on enough sunscreen so my first longer than expected conversation <laughs> uh, with George uh, ended up uh, with me having a sunburn because it was uh, walking up and down uh, in the bright uh, Italian sunshine. You were, you were uh, deep in thought. This yeah, was an amazing opportunity. No, and and I'm sure, and to everyone out there, this is not a call that 
many people get, because this isn't really a position. What Fred is about to describe was, I think, a little bit of a maverick thing by George, and I'd like your thoughts on that, but I just want to clarify to people who don't know, like, this is not a normal situation when someone becomes a new CEO. So please continue. Uh, no, to- totally not. Uh, I mean, it was totally surprising. And actually all of uh, uh, the journey after that was in a way surprising because all of us as collectors, in a way, uh, I'd say think to know a lot about the brand and, and sometimes see things happening at brands that they aren't totally happy with or seeing directions uh, that that don't reflect the true values of a brand, whatever. I mean, all of us, you know, annoyed alls in a way. And actually, it's it's uh, the surprise of a lifetime for a CEO who uh, sees actually George. Uh, what 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 actually uh, we we found out uh, quite quite soon is uh, the Breitling we knew during the early two thousands was actually. In, in many ways, not reflecting uh, the full heritage of far from lif- reflecting true heritage. George mm-hmm. actually found uh, a very good description for it in the end. He said we were like, like a shark in a swimming pool, extremely strong huh. in a very small niche of the market, neglecting the sea uh, and, and actually writing in its history has always covered all the segments, always specialized in, in chronographs, uh, but but most definitely not uh, uh, oversized, hyper-masculine, uh, slightly flashy uh, pilot chronographs only, where Brightling for some years uh, positioned itself. Well, let's, let's back up a second here and talk a little bit more about why he called you, because he called you to, to, of course, eventually have you become uh, you know, the brand's um, historian. But it sounded like it was more than that. He was putting together a group of people, sort of like a little board of advisors to help with a lot of decisions, help explain what it was that George said he needed help with and, and some of the basics of that conversation. Because, again, I think it's unique. What he needed was was to learn about Breitling, to learn about back catalogs of Breitling, the positioning the relevance of Breitling uh, throughout uh, the, the century, uh, 20th oh, century, starting starting uh, uh, in the in the early 1900s, even if they uh, it, they were founded in, in 1884, they started churning out lots of, of innovative stuff uh, in the very early uh, 20th century, uh, and uh, in a way. Uh, for George, to begin with, it was just to get a feeling who are the people out there, who are the, the brand enthusiasts, who know about the brand. Uh, and uh, I think in many aspects, George started, he knew the current Breitling, he knew the late Schneider Breitling, he knew right. the reality, uh, the reality of positioning, the reality of, of advertising, uh, etc. And he knew very little to nothing, really, uh, about uh, the back catalogs, the backgrounds, uh, the uh, very, very rich heritage the brand had. I have to uh, say something so, important here. Yeah. Why was that important? I think it might be obvious to anyone who is trying to remake a watch brand or revitalize it, but why specifically was it important for George to get to know the old Breitling? Because theoretically speaking, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, even if he didn't like what the brand was doing in the early 2000s, he had the option of taking it in a completely unique direction. He could have taken Breitling anywhere he wanted to. The question is, in your opinion, why was he so interested in the past? Because these are these are the, the pillars of, of any company. Uh, this isn't a startup. This isn't a company that was founded in the early 2000s or after the quartz crisis. And this isn't, and I won't mention names here, uh, this isn't the company that found some some uh, a relevant watchmaker in the 17th century and decided, okay, let's pick that name and let's quote unquote build up smoke screens uh, that that make us look uh, like uh, a, a brand uh, of rich heritage, where the heritage actually only is uh, the name you've purchased the rights for. Uh, Here we've got a company that had true character, relevant, 
innovation and not relevant innovation in some some unique complication that that someone uh, may have invented in a in a workshop somewhere, uh, but of I'd say a strategic strategic definition of the modern chronograph. This is how Breitling saw themselves. How Billy Breitling uh, saw the company. So let's 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 explain that because. Again, I, I think it's so important to discuss what you're saying because there's a lot to unpackage there. You're trying to distinguish between certain brands that are what we would call heritage brands, and they really just focus on some very original aesthetic, sometimes from the you know the, the 1800s, 1900s, or something like that. And the brand is essentially there to keep that that sort of vision alive. It's not modern in the sense that what they're evoking is something specifically from the past. Whereas Breitling has been over the 20th century, a real champion of the chronograph, which is, you know, probably the world's favorite complication of wristwatches aside from telling the time, and that maybe there was something about the company that did that and that heritage which you were trying to explore. Again, I'm, I'm just trying to sort of distill some of what yeah, you're yeah. saying for the people that don't know the brand as intimately as you or myself. Uh, perfectly fine. As I said, many of the companies, uh, forgive me for saying that, and I won't mention names, but... but uh, oh, you can. Uh, <laughs> you can if you like. <laughs> I, uh, I, I sometimes wish I could, uh, in, in, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's many, many companies out now uh, that call themselves Swiss and uh, are looking at a heritage uh, going back to the 1600s. And and all they actually did is acquire the rights to that name. There was these are companies founded in the 1990s, in the 2000s, and some of them even more recently. They have no connection whatsoever to the brand. These were never watch brands, but but some historical watchmaker uh, that. Uh, uh, invented something relevant, and we the companies use this name to build up heritage and history that actually doesn't exist. And there's, there's a huge difference there. There's a huge difference. There. We've got a a, okay. a, a, comp, a, a founder's, founder's family, three generations, one after the other, uh, that that follow something like like a grand plan of where they think they need to both position their brand and chronographs in general. This is what it evolved around. They did lovely well-timers and, and beautiful, beautiful dive watches, etc. Uh, but the core of it always was make the chronograph, as you called it, the favorite complication of all, something that people needed to have and define form and function of that wrist chronograph. This was actually the, the grand plan of the Breitling family. Interesting. And uh, that was a dream the Breitlings had. Uh, and that was a dream George fell in love with. Uh, I think that, that my love for that probably was a bit infectious. Uh, mm. And uh, just to, to come back to, to uh, the, the early days of, of uh, uh, George and me and, and, and all the others, of course, that the brand working together is. Uh, so that call was before an official announcement uh, and, and before George uh, took over as, as, uh, as CEO in, in Grenfell. And one of the first things he did after he officially joined Breitling is he came to, to visit me. Uh, there's actually a picture of, of that meeting, of, of my, my meeting table covered in, in dozens and dozens and dozens of watches and George sitting there and he and he saw designs functions model families etc uh, and and he saw the potential in all of them so in many ways that that first September something the 2017 Vienna meeting uh really many of the products we've, we've launched during the, the, the last years were, were actually, in a way, defined very roughly during that, that Vienna day. Okay, this, he, he saw his first premiere. And of right. course, he held that watch in his hand and, and said, we need to bring that back. Now, you put this collection of watches together. This was a curated look at Breitling's history prepared by you. 
Uh, yep, it's. Uh, I mean, I've, I've uh, years ago, uh, early two thousand, started to to really concentrate on 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 collecting, and and there was a crazy day where I decided, okay, as there was no company, active company, working on documenting their heritage. Uh, that seems to be something I'd, I'd, I'd really love to do. And I started to learn and, and uh, collect and started to uh, understand what was fake and what was original. Because uh, one of the problems, of course, was when there's no defined source to to ask uh, then faking watches uh, uh is becoming too easy and uh, so tri trial and error for some years i uh, always uh, i'm slightly ashamed i've got a small drawer of fake brightlings that i bought in the early days before i understood what was authentic and what wasn't, and I've, I'll of course never wear them or show them. Uh, maybe yeah. one accident. Yeah, uh, accidents of the past, but but I I hate accidents, so I started to educate myself <laughs> uh, and and bring myself into a position to understand for myself what for, what to look for, and then to start supporting other collectors, of course, and that ended in a decision. Uh, to try and collect all relevant chronograph references that Breitling ever produced between the start of the mass market around 1940 and uh, when Willi uh, closed down the original Breitling in 1979. So for that, you have to understand that in the 1946 catalog, which was the largest of the history, uh, there were like 66 different chronograph references, and I'm not talking about different dial configuration, colors, uh, materials, or whatever, 66 different models. So wow. there was a huge depth to, to the model line. Uh, yeah, and uh, so it, it took me a long time to, to more or less cover it all. Uh, and uh, yeah, I built a curated brand heritage in a way. And uh, of course, this was something that uh, was a surprise and, and uh, something that, that I think Raj also uh, still sees as, as one, as, as a relevant influence in, in repositioning Breitling. Well, what's, what's interesting is that you, you weren't just a sort of neutral curator of Breitling's history it seemed like you had a particular interest in a major part of what Breitling was doing, but not everything they were doing, and you focused on that. And then the collection that you put together, which represents your appreciation for Breitling, was adopted by George Kern and now has translated itself into essentially what the last six years or so of Breitling has been like. It, it you know, just thinking about what you've been saying. Influence. Let's not overplay. Okay, nothing what I've done in the past uh, would be of any relevance today if, if Georges hadn't uh, left Richemont, uh, 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 sat down in the chair of, of Breitling CEO and, and you know, uh, coined that, that, that slogan, this is only the beginning, and he meant it. Uh, he, he didn't go there to, to be there for a year or two until he went to, to the next job uh, that was waiting for him. This was something like, like a lifetime opportunity for him too, and, and that's how he handled it. And uh, I always say, when people say, okay, you've done this and that, I said, I, I, I did nothing more uh, than help uh, a master entrepreneur and a master marketer, uh, he truly is that, uh, to, to really, really revive something that I consider, if you're into chronographs, uh, something that, that uh, Solly needed uh, to, to be revived. So uh, I did help him a bit, but uh, I don't want to okay. over Okay, being humble. I appreciate that. But look, I mean... George is looking for influence. He knows what he knows, and he also knows what he doesn't know. And he knows that someone like you is going to have a lot more to say about the true spirit of Breitling than someone like him. And I think that George is someone that knows, you know, how to trust someone who can do something that he cannot. I think what's interesting is that after that initial meeting and and getting to know 
the Breitling brand, being his teacher, as you said, mentoring him, you you are still there in in both the consultative capacity, but as as an official at Breitling uh, related to the canon of the brand, the history. Talk a little bit about what that's like on on, on a daily basis. It's it's multifaceted. Uh, much of my uh, very first relevant steps, besides uh, talking to quote unquote everyone at Breitling uh, and and all the new guys uh, joining the company in relevant positions, etc., and and instilling that or trying to instill that that spirit of uniqueness that that. Uh, every company needs to have, of course. I mean, talking about, we, we've had some some intense discussion, and I won't mention names about uh, a reedition that was recently launched uh, by one of those "quote unquote" historical brands. Uh, I'll tell you this, uh, the the very first relevant project I had uh, was George telling me, "Okay, Fred, we want to." We don't want to do re-editions in general, but we want some re-editions that truly catch the, the, the spirit. And that's in, especially in the light of, of uh, uh, things that, that are happening with other brands. I'll tell you how the re-edition decision happened at Breitling. Uh, and this is, again, the dream of every collector. Uh, so Georges said, okay, we can't, Based it on re-editions, but but having some re-editions of of major icons of the brand will teach us what to look for. Uh, so, Fred, why don't you do a re-edition? And uh, the collector, the super enthusiast, however you want to call me, gets to define the design and development of a Navitimer re-edition. And the only okay. thing that George said to the design team, to the product team responsible for manufacturing that was, you do what Fred says. Wow. Okay. How lucky. So, uh, 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 you know, it's a, it's a lot more complicated than you thought it would be. Okay. We had like, like <laughs> prototype runs until the dial was right. Uh, countless loom. Uh, trials uh, uh, we had to do until until the loom looked like, felt like, uh, glowed like, etc. We we thought it it needed to be. So again, doing a reedition is theoretically extremely easy until you truly do it. Uh, but but yeah, that was George's understanding. If we do a reedition, we do it one hundred percent right down to the micrometer right wherever we can. In every aspect, every material, every line, every font, whatever it is. Uh, so and and that in a way helped to understand how precise things, how precisely things were done, how important fonts were, etc. So your goal was to recreate, I just want to understand, because there's there's different ways of going about a, a recreation of a heritage piece. Sometimes it looks exactly the same. Sometimes it doesn't. What w- what was your goal? Was it a one to one copy? Was it s- updated? Oh, like, okay. yeah. Now let let us again. We all knew that this isn't wouldn't remain the strategy. First of all, recreate the original one to one. Understand the original. Understand how every hand shape is relevant. So. Uh, you need to do three different hands for the subtitles, although doing one would be much quicker and easier. Working on on every subtitle font, on every on the smallest aspect of it, to truly have that watch, quote unquote, glow the way it originally did. Have the soul, and this makes a big difference. You know, I think it's it's easy to make fun of this process, but when you look at the dial and you see the reflectiveness. Uh, the colors, the way that that light reflects, it makes a huge difference on the smallest things. The fonts, you can tell there's a difference, there's a slight difference in shape. Maybe your eye immediately doesn't know what you're looking at, but your brain senses that something is off or wrong or not as nice as something and else. Believe, very, me, very believe me, everything, everything is wrong on the first prototype. Even if you thought <laughs> it wasn't, everything is wrong. But however, let's get back to that because it actually isn't 
that important. What it did is it instilled that understanding of attention to detail. Uh, and then something for me, at least, very, very important happened. Uh, my friend uh, Sylvain, Sylvain Banneron, joined the company as as creative director and of course i mean we started out as as uh, happy to meet you sylvain and uh, tell me a bit about yourself and it ended in something i think both of us now call a close friendship uh, deep trust uh, and you can't imagine the nights and hours and and unbelievable amount of of time we we talk about every aspect of a model that needs to be revived. How often we say, okay, we need to go back to square one. It needs to restart. And and what, what Sylvain does is precisely that. Sylvain doesn't do re-editions. Sylvain recreates the soul or tries to, and I think quite successfully in, 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 in uh, on, on many models, he tries to to bring back the foundational character a watch had that made it unique, that made it iconic, and transformed that into a modern watch. So if you look at the Navitimer, if you look at the Chronomart, if you look at the Super Oceans, all of these were, were major fails. If you look at the relaunched Chronomart, were production ready in theory with a prototype until we saw it in reality. And the decision actually was back to square one. Right. And, and Sylvain's been on the show a couple of times. He's a friend of Superlative and a friend of A Blog to Watch Weekly. So we love having his voice here. So I agree yeah. with you that he's a very, very special character. And, and I want to emphasize what you said, where his particular, we'll call it his philosophy, uh, towards the recreation of these watches, like you said, is not a one-to-one copy, but is about taking the modern construction techniques and materials which are available, and and I guess you said it correctly, trying to reproduce the soul, where it feels as familiar as possible. It feels as though it's a, a modern extension. Again, it doesn't look exactly the same, but it's more than a graphic design copy. And I think that's what we don't like is a lot of those graphic design copies that in a, in, in a computer program, yes, it's the modern version of this. But when you hold the old versus the new physical products, there's so much missing about the new ones. And I think that a lot of what's missing is on the dials. And you know a lot about how dials used to be made. Do you think that there's a big difference that happened between they were more handmade, hand-painted, um, you know, more carefully printed with machines, you know, like hand-printed versus today's more industrialized processes? Again, yes, of course. Okay, there's a huge difference between a production run of, of 100 watches in the 1940s uh, and, and mass produced industrialized manufacturing today and there are some things that that where where machines uh, just are incapable of that you know that that uniqueness that the stroke uh, uh, of, of of a pen will always be unique uh, so for example for the reeditions as crazy it is, as it is uh, we decided to do hand applied hand painted loom because you can't do that with uh, industrialized mass manufacturing. Uh, of right. course, in, in standardized products, you can't do that. You have some some standardized uh, stencil uh, that that uh, you you mass produce. Uh, but it's small things. I mean, it's uh, looking at, at icons like the Navi Timer, for example. There's there's a certain uniqueness that has a light uh, crystal breaks the light over the dial. So, and as a modern mass-produced model, the 70th anniversary in Navitime, of course, couldn't have Hazelite. People want Sapphire. Uh, the market wants Sapphire. So, uh, uh, Sylvain worked for, for weeks shaping that, that Sapphire in a way that it would break the light in a similar way the Hazelite does and it, it recreates that that uniqueness the Navi timer has on your wrist. So it's always complicated and and we might do uh, uh, something together with Sylvain today where, where Fred, for example, says, why can't we do this and that like in the past? Maybe maybe uh, think about reshaping it, but basically go to that idea. Uh, and then you hear, okay, 
there's there's just no way we can do that today because in the past uh, the, the the amount of of work invested in a watch uh, wasn't such a relevant factor as it is today, and we don't have machines who can do it, and we don't have the people. Even if money would be no object, we don't have the people who are capable of, of producing these in the numbers we need. Hi, I'm Ariel Adams, founder of a blog to watch with a message from eBay, a platform I probably use daily. Make sure your watches are the real deal with eBay Authenticity Guarantee. I believe it's the first and best service of its kind that protects your luxury purchases and checks each watch individually at eBay's highly reputable authentication partner, Stolen Company, in the United States. From band to bezel, their authenticators ensure each wristwatch matches the eBay listing and is the real deal. Authenticity guarantee is also very fast. Once authentication is complete, your watch is securely delivered via rapid two-day shipping. Surprisingly, eBay's authenticity guarantee service is free for all watches priced $2,000 and up. No one should buy a luxury item without an authenticity guarantee. Do what I do and check eBay before each watch purchase because everyone deserves real. No, it's very interesting, and I love this discussion because there is a big difference between how watches were made back then and made today. And even today, there's a big difference between how watches can be made. And the way that a watch is made has, in many instances, more to do with the final outcome than the materials themselves. I want to go back to something you talked about when you were discussing the original sort of uh, motivation of, of, of the relevant period of Breitling that you liked, which was to be the best chronograph maker. Do you have any examples of particular innovations? I know that Breitling invented like the, the mono pusher chronograph and the original layouts of, of the chronographs as we use it. But talk about some of the highlights of the development of, of, of the chronograph at Breitling. In a, in a way, I mean, it's, uh, we have to look at, at, we've got the first push for a two chronograph uh, that uh, was developed under Leon and then and then launched under, under the store in 1915 that had, Massive impact on how chronographs uh, were were made uh, and and designed during the decades to come and and many more. Uh, but behind all that, uh, as I as I said, uh, stood the idea to make the chronograph a tool everyone wanted. Uh, and it's the definition of tool watch. So really started. Uh, when it actually very much uh, during the war years, it became clear, okay, the chronograph has now become a standardized tool for military purposes, but but uh, it's hugely useful in the cockpit of a plane, hugely useful for, for many other applications, uh, but, but we'll need to take that impact these years had to make the chronograph a standardized product uh, and, and look at marketing it in, in different ways. So one of the first things really uh, did is he combined the slide rule, something that every, the pocket computer, uh, uh, what we today do on our mobile phones, uh, those of us uh, who are old enough uh, had a pocket calculator uh, for years to work with. This was the slide rule in the 1940s. Everybody knew how to use a slide rule to calculate. Uh, so the very first specialized, unique tool was the chronomat patented in 1940, where he took the chronograph, added that, that slide roll tool that every businessman, every mathematician, every engineer knew how to use and, and quote-unquote, made it the first smartwatch, uh, have that pocket calculator with you, 1940. And it's funny that this product in many ways uh, defined much of what would come afterwards with the Navi timer uh, and uh, still is, is one of the uh, icons uh, of the brand. Naming model families is also something that, that Billy was, I think, if you look at the complete range, uh, he started to define form and then to also define how uh, products would be marketed. So you see, if we look at the Premier that we recently launched mm -hmm. uh, during the, the, the 1940s, where, I mean, the world was, was during the war years, uh, danger, darkness, 
Uh, but, but I think we know a little bit about what that's like now, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's, 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 uh, as, as, uh, I mean, if you aren't in New York and, 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 uh, suffer from the, the, the horrible air quality, uh, in general, we're, we're living, probably living better than we ever did. And, and we're just, just not <laughs> smart enough to appreciate it, maybe, but, uh, a correct perspective, probably. Okay, uh, let's, let's put that aside. <laughs> And uh, no, let's not compare it with those those uh, those years. It was really the world was standing at the abyss, uh, and and really always believed in the war to end quite soon, and in the war to end. He started looking at the U.S. as a major market during those precise years. I think really knew uh, that. Uh, the U.S. would be a defining factor uh, for the world in in the in the years after after the World War. Uh, he started to look at at Hollywood uh, for for marketing purposes, etc., and started to to uh, reposition his watches from the stock tool watches he had manufactured to something optimistic, exuberant, luxurious. He was, you just see it and you see that uh, on a watch designed in 1943. He just... Give me examples. was a perfect example of that. Uh, so he took the aviator's tool watch, stark, readable, typically blacked out, uh, and and uh, started to to design a line of of beautiful massive gold cases uh, with the luxurious style details, applied indexes, uh, a watch that that made your heart sing when you when you looked at it. Uh, Using so essentially a very functional mechanical movement that probably had military inspiration. Of course, of course. Using what what had proven to be the most reliable engine you could use uh, to, to be the tool of a pilot, uh, uh, of an artilleryman, uh, whatever it was, and, and make that uh, the tool that every gentleman needed and that uh, would, would just make your heart sing when you looked at it. I want to comment here. Because I think this is so important to talk about. Uh, it's not discussed enough, but you know we have to be historians. We have to go back in time and imagine what it was like back then. Because this was true for so many companies. At the end of World War II, you put all this effort into you know ten plus years of research and development for tools, weapons, vehicles, all this stuff. Now the world's changed, and you somehow have to pivot or at least try to pivot. So an enormous number of companies who are primarily producing things for military, industrial, um, we'll call it professional use, now have an opportunity to sell towards this new emerging consumer class around the world, which is just seemingly getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it was only those companies that understood how to do that shift because you had to be a marketer. You know, it's a very sort of pragmatic existence to make kind of widget to an industrial spec, make it as good and as cheap as possible and make what the client needs without having to invent what the client needs next. Having a single client actually and a guaranteed profit margin. Let's not forget yes. that. Yeah. All these things. This is this is quite innovative stuff, and you know, to take this movement that was essentially made for professional purposes, put it inside, like you said, a gold case with a decorated dial. This was an innovative thing to do, and then you had to come up with a marketing campaign to tell everybody why you wanted this gold tool watch. Um, and that, you know, it was it was multiple angles. You couldn't just be like, "Hey, everyone, here's the gold watch you've all been wanting." You had to create a little bit of emotion so that demand could be generated, right? Uh, you, uh, hugely so. And, and actually, it's interesting. The, the more you you go through the archives, uh, talk, uh, find uh, snippets. One of the lovely things I can uh, can do today uh, as the brand historian, uh, the son of of Willy Brightling, Gregory also became a friend of mine, opened uh, all his family archives, all his pictures, all the documents uh, he had collected over the years. Uh, and there's, there's an interesting snippet there in 1935. Billy was 21 years old. There, there's an interview with uh, an Austrian newspaper, funnily enough, where he started to, to dream about the chronograph mass market 
uh, and we have to understand uh, most of, 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 of the people listening uh, may not know that, that wristwatches had just begun to be the standard for, for men's watches. Uh, uh, well into the 1920s, we have, we have intense uh, uh, discussions where people frowned at, at the use of wristwatches for men. Uh, we have uh, quotes in the New York Times where wristwatches are for women. Men have proper waistcoats uh, to put uh, to to carry their proper pockets, <laughs> etc. Uh, so uh, we're talking about something totally young. Okay. So uh, in that interview, Billy looks at photography uh, and. Uh, Again, that may be a subject uh, we today, because all of us, actually photography is more or less dead. We all use our mobile phones then. Uh, but we have to understand that in the 1920s, photograph uh, photography, again, was a bit like watches, you know, large, cumbersome, hugely expensive, clunky, professional cameras. And then came Kodak and uh, started marketing a, a product called Brownie. Uh, that that uh, made photography a mass phenomenon, and Willie was quoting Kodak and Brownie and said, "Look, we need we need to to standardize. We need to be competitive in price. We need to be capable of industrially mass produce, uh, and uh, we we definitely need the branding." So Willie starts in 1940. This wasn't done to give line, names to all his model lines. The first uh, he, he actually registered was uh, the Chronomart, uh, the slide rule, chronograph, and then the Premier, and then the Datora, and then so each of, of the functional niche model families uh, had their own branding, something not done in the industry. Watches barely had reference numbers uh, barely. Or, or branding. Okay. So At all. Yeah, it was the dial or sometimes it was the jeweler that had the branding. Yeah. Like branding as we know it for watches is a relatively recent phenomenon, right? Uh, you, uh, again, having someone, again, let's let's remember the guy was, was in his very early 20s when all that happened. He was mm -hmm. uh, 18 when he joined the company, 20 when he, when he took over at CEO, and and he didn't stop for a second until 1979. Actually, you have fireworks of innovation through decades. Okay, but the first thing he does is he defines model range, looks at his strategy, looks for technical solutions that will cover his strategic dreams, uh, and and then forges ahead. Okay, and defines again. I think the speedmaster. Uh, sorry, the seamaster. Uh, was one of the uh, those to to soon follow, but but having a company really branding the whole product line etc was totally innovative, totally new, something nobody had thought about, and he was dreaming about that mass market that actually evolved after World War II, well before the war, and positioned the company to to be able to to uh, benefit from it. Interesting. Now, I want to, you know, talk a little bit about the sort of meta look, because you are a historian and you've seen the sort of ups and downs. And we're gonna, I want to hear a little bit more about the 50s and 60s and then into the 70s. But the watch industry has had its, um, you know, instances where it almost didn't happen, right? Like at the end of World War II, there almost wasn't a mainstream watch industry unless they were able to get, you know, get these things into into the hands of, of consumers, which is sort of an uphill battle. In the 1960s, you start to have the electronic watches coming, and then by the 70s, you have quartz. Um, now you have smart watches. Does it surprise you today? Is there a part of your brain, you're a very smart guy, does it ever surprise you that watches still are as popular as they are? They're popular for different reasons, but isn't it kind of weird, the resiliency that this product category has? I just want to know your opinions on that. There's, uh, again, there, uh, is it weird? Uh, look at me, for example, okay? My business life is always centered around electronics. And I'm old enough to, to have been there and witnessed the launch of the first uh, IBM personal computer, et cetera, and, and see that market segment uh, explode and and uh, start to to conquer the world. I was into electronics, and I knew then 
Moore's law hadn't been uh, uh, defined yet, but it was as as active as it as it ever would be. Uh, you knew that anything you did in electronics would be obsolete in two, three years max. And it's it's similar in many many other aspects. Look at, at as as no matter uh, how how wonderful cars are, uh, driving an E Type from the sixties. Uh, being there, done that, tried that, uh, is, isn't the feeling of, of uh, a smooth ride we're used to today. Uh, right. The wonderful thing about mechanical watches is eternity, in a way. Uh, these, they are as perfect, or they have been almost as perfect as they could ever be from a technological point of view, since 1969, uh, we can discuss that uh, for, for length, and it's going to be longer than we uh, want it to be for the, for the <laughs> uh But my claim is the last relevant innovation was the automatic chronograph, 1969. Anything after uh, a well-regulated Venus 178 manufactured in 1943 will be as precise as functional as any watch, any mechanical watch we can build today. We can look at silicon, we can look at, at, at all kinds of stupidity, whether we are plus minus three or where, whether we are plus minus one, and, and maybe if we regulate it uh, perfectly and always position it right, I can do that many of my, my BO1, I might reach the magical zero and it will be totally precise and was still <laughs> less precise than a $5 quartz watch your kid buys or you, you, you're getting with, uh, with your ice cream or whatever. But mechanical watches are as perfect as they can be. They're as, as eternal as anything technical can be, functional as anything technical can be, and they bring you Joy, they're beautiful. I jo I joke. I say that mechanical wristwatch isn't getting any more obsolete. Uh, but but that's precisely <laughs> it. But that's, okay, fine. Let's see. Okay, yes, you're. Yes, you're, they can't get any more obsolete. In comparison to quartz watches, they're slightly less precise, and I mean, always I mean, will be. It's just they're oddly relevant, you know. Because I, I love this discussion where you started talking about how. In electronics, you know that it's going to be more or less obsolete and useless. Watches, for some reason, even though they're not the best at most things that they do, they're still good enough and beautiful, as you said, that we choose to be close to them. Isn't that what you know? Okay, if you're buying a watch today, you most probably i've heard about those stories about the demise of of the the, the mechanical wristwatch for the last. 30 years, at least longer, probably, okay? I had a discussion with my co-workers in the 1980s, okay? And I was very young, but they looked at me, why don't you use that beautiful new LED quartz watch? It's more precise than your mechanical chronograph. And I told them, yeah, but your quartz watch will be dead in a year from now and obsolete and irrelevant, and my watch will be with me to pass on to my children. And there's a certain amount of, of masterful stability to it. Well, it's, it's sort of the longevity which yeah. we like. And I yeah. try to think about, you know, as human beings, we not only have an oftentimes desire to live a long time, but we want our memories to live on. We want our cities, our cultures, our family, our inventions to live on. We like things that have permanence. We, and so we admire other things in our environment whether it's facets of culture or buildings or natural phenomena or ideally things we invent that last a long time. And the idea that we can pick up something that was made in excess of 100 years ago and it still works, maybe just maybe gives us hope into our own ability to conquer age incrementally so that we can pursue this desire of longevity. Very, uh, that, that's, that's a philosophical view of it. I, it may be easier. In the same way, 
Venice will always be Venice. And I'm talking about Venice, Italy, Venezia. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry for my, my friends in the, in the United States. Venice will always be Venice. Assuming it's above water. Uh, yeah. Okay. There's, there's <laughs> that. Uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, much of, of Vienna will always be Vienna. Mozart will always have, uh, you know, there's, there's a certain basic uniqueness and character. And I think, again, good watches have all that. Longevity, uniqueness, heritage, pride. Uh, yeah. Okay. There's, there's, there's a lot about, there's that too, of course. I mean, uh, most of the watches, women's watches and, and men's watches are inherently different in a way. Okay. Watches for men are, for most of us, the, the only jewel we wear. And, and it's true. Something, again, I mean, one of the things I'm, I'm trying to do, I don't succeed in, in, in all of it, uh, with all of them, of course, is, is, uh, for all the relevant watches I own, I try to wear them. I try to strap them on, not leave them in the safe. Uh, even if some of them are unique survivors, strap them on, use them, enjoy them. Well, you're lucky because older Breitling watches tend to be large enough to be worn in modern sense. And I, I think this is really important to state. If you are interested in vintage watches, you know that a lot of them are quite small by today's, today's standards. And but not all, but yeah. many of the Breitling watches, especially the ones that you like, and I remember because I see you wearing them, they're not huge by today's standards, but they're definitely wearable. So you're lucky in that. Okay, I'm lucky in that, but there's there's uh, another point to discuss again, showing that that absurdity of Willy Breitling's mind in a way, and I, I deeply admire him for that. Large watches became all the rage in the early 2000s. Yeah. Okay, so uh, we've got Sylvester Stallone and we've got Arnie, etc. Uh, to blame for that. Breitling launched a 48 millimeter wearable because it has very short lugs and it's actually a very yeah. wearable watch. The so-called waterproof big case line was launched in 1967. They started uh, uh, manual wind uh, uh, watches before it was originally designed for the the first automatic chronograph, the case uh, concept by for the collectors here by Epsa Picare, one of the most innovative case makers ever. Uh, Forty eight millimeter. Because, quoting Willy, if you want a reliably waterproof and usable Navi timer, that's the size you need. And sad enough, it, it still is. Okay, if you want a 200-meter uh, fully functional, not decorative slide roll chronograph, uh, and we won't talk about uh, other companies that tried it with poor purely functioning alternatives, uh, that's about what you need. So he said, okay, I'm, I'm producing professional tools and they need to be perfect. I need a 20 ATM, 200 meter dive capable slide roll chronograph. So it will have to be 48, 1967. Ahead of their time. And into the 70s, Obviously, there was not just big Breitlings, but an enormous amount of experimentation. Was part of that in reaction to the shifting market, which was incorporating quartz as well as mechanical, and there was just a lot of things of unclear, unclarity about what the market wanted? I, help me understand what, 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 pe what the people were thinking, especially in the early 70s. Uh, we see something. Uh, it's actually uh, watches become unaffordable in some markets. You're pricing yourself outside of the market. At the same time, you've got uh, Far East uh, starting to, to mass produce uh, relevant competing watches. So one of the things they, they were looking into is, is how to differentiate yourself be more and more unique. And then, I mean, we've got those things like we generally, again, looking at Breitling and uh, those those worries started in the in the later 60s, actually. And that in all the, the aspects, rethinking positioning, 
and looking at colors, for example, what we those those uh, green and blue uh, uh, and and red designs that all of us uh, have, have come to call 1970s designs was right. uh, something bright things started in 1965. They launched their first model with those color codes because they, again, were looking at, at alternative designs. So reinventing themselves all the time. Uh, and, and then in the late 70s, reinventing didn't, didn't, wasn't an option anymore if you weren't uh, actually stopping production of, of mechanical watches and, and doing something totally different from a, a point of view of, of competing low-cost production like the Schneiders did during the, during the early years. Very complex period. Uh, and again, it's, it's really way worse than the quartz crisis because originally quartz watches were expensive. Very expensive. Okay. So, no, it wasn't really the quartz crisis that killed the Swiss industry. It was Bretton Woods. It was the high-quality mass, industrial mass production from the Far East, Japan and China, that they couldn't compete with, especially based on the crazily rising uh, costs uh, they needed to pay in Swiss franc. I mean, the, the era is so rarely discussed in this level of detail. I love talking about it because, as you said, it is complicated. The 80s is, in a lot of ways, just as complicated in the Swiss watch industry with swatch and stuff like that. I mean, there's just layers of complexity. But, I, again, we, we could have an entire other conversation about this. Where I want to end this conversation is the the modern relaunch of Breitling as you know, again, it is already a different form, you know, under the new ownership and under George Kern today. But there was this period in the 90s and the 2000s where the brand was highly revitalized and became very, very popular. And I just would like to hear your thoughts from your findings on what allowed the popularity? What did, what did it do correctly? You know, what, what was Breitling in, in, the, in, in the 90s and 2000s? And then uh, we'll have to open it up to another conversation later. Yeah, we'll definitely do that because that's, that's in, in many ways under-researched, funnily enough. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, as, as much as I, I'm a vintage watch guy, okay, basically. But as, as Breitling historian, <laughs> uh, you, you start to, to understand that it may be Quite impressive and very nice what uh, Willi did with the Navi timer in 1952. But let's leave Willi by the side for a moment and Jack Koresik and, and Nico Wachmann. Uh, actually, Ernest Schneider was as much of a visionary as, as Willi was because he really had the guts to say, okay, I, I'm a very decent mass producer of affordable quartz watches. That's where he started. That's where I came from. Then he looked at, at Breitling's heritage of, of case design and quality excellence, and he started to move his functionally well-done electronic designs into the quote-unquote brightening level of workmanship in, 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 in dials and, 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 and case manufacturing. And then he said, the mechanical chronograph can't be dead. It's impossible in a way, probably saw it in the same way. We've got all the electronic stuff, but, but we want something to pass on to our children, something that will survive together with us and then survive our children, etc. And uh, we need the mechanical chronograph back in the cockpit. And then he went to the to the to the pilots of the French Tricolori and they co-designed the, the original chronomat, uh, which was hugely successful. I mean, sometimes if you talk to, to people in in, uh, in their sixties today, they'll tell you that this was the dream watch in Italy. Everyone wore the chronomat. This was was icon of style. So hugely successful with their with their lines. These watches are small by today's standards, 39 millimeter. Uh, we just went a bit overboard a decade later. So uh, there's there's a lot of of vision and and passion during the Schneider years, and that's also something that's it's part of our heritage. And you'll see uh, the professional lines survive at Breitling. So these professional 
quartz chronographs be emergencies? Are those, will they ever be mass market products? No, but they're unique. They're crazy. And they, they are part of, of what makes Brightling so outstanding for me. So that's something that will be treated with respect and invested in uh, because it really makes us who we are. Fred, we are out of time, but this has been um, a fantastic discussion, and I can't wait for round two. Everyone, uh, this has been the historian of Breitling and the consultant to Mr. George Kern, Fred Mandelbaum. Fred, thank you so much. A pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit blog2watch.com.